My dwelling place is God most high, my refuge and my fortress. When plagues and pestilence draw nigh, I'm hidden in His presence. When terrors fall and arrows fly, His shield will be When stones across my pathway lie, on angels' wings I am carried. My dwelling place is God knows high, a present in danger. I rest secure in love's pure light beneath my master's favor. He freed me from the fowler's snare where sin and shame had bound me. Deceived I'd make my refuge there to fearness he morning, nine o'clock people. It's good to see you and uh, the people who are watching on the live stream. Glad that you're here with us. 
Uh, everything's normal this week, schedule-wise. Everything's on. Today, we're going to be in adult Bible study on Zoom. We're going to be looking at 2 John. So if you're interested in participating in that, uh, let me know. Uh, and I can shoot you an uh, invitation to that Zoom uh, get-together. Uh, other than that, everything else is good to go. Youth confirmation today at 1130. Uh, evening prayer tonight at uh, 5 o'clock. So join us here for that. Men's Bible study, uh, women's Bible study are on this week. And uh, Lent service uh, Wednesday evening at 7 here and also live streamed. Uh, check out the announcements if you have any more questions about that. Go ahead and stand with me and I'll open us up in prayer and then we will continue worshiping. Dear God, uh, you know our hearts. You know that we uh, long for power and that that longing for power is always mixed up with uh, sinfulness and brokenness. Uh, we want your power, God, but we confess that we can't handle it. We want you to have your power, but to share it with us, to use it on our behalf, to use it to save us and to rescue us. We pray that you would do that this morning, that you would come and meet with us, and that you would use your power to transform us into people who look more like your son, Jesus. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen. Let's continue in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Lord, have mercy upon us. Christ, have mercy upon us. Lord, have mercy upon us. Let us confess our sins to God our Father. Holy and merciful God, in your presence we confess our sinfulness, our shortcomings, and our offenses against you. You alone know how often we have sinned in wandering from your ways, in wasting your gifts, in forgetting your love. Have mercy on us, O Lord, for we are ashamed and sorry for all we have done to displease you. Forgive our sins and help us to live in your light and walk in your ways. For the sake of Jesus Christ, our Savior. Amen. Because of Jesus, God has forgiven all our sin. Hear the Gospel of Christ from Romans 5. Paul says this, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Please remain standing for the hymn.
Psalm, vindicate me, O God, and defend my cause against an ungodly people. From the deceitful and unjust man, deliver me. I love the Lord because he has heard my voice and my pleas for mercy, because he inclined his ear to me. Therefore, I will call on him as long as I live. The snares of death encompassed me. The pangs of Sheol laid hold on me. I suffered distress and anguish. Then I called on the name of the Lord. O Lord, I pray, deliver my soul, for you have delivered my soul from death, my eyes from tears, my feet from stumbling. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and will be forever. Amen. You may be seated. Jeremiah 31 is the Old Testament reading, really classic uh, text, New Covenant text. We're going to talk about this on uh, Wednesday night. Jeremiah says this, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. But this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Pistol reading, uh, Hebrews 5, again, uh, New Covenant text. Every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. He can deal gently, uh, the high priest can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward, since he himself is beset with weakness. But because of this, he's obligated to offer sacrifices for his own sins, just as he does for those of the people. And no one takes this honor for himself, but only when called by God, just as Aaron was. So also, Christ did not exalt himself to be made a high priest, but was appointed by him who said to him, here's a quote from Psalm 2, you are my son, today I have begotten you. As he also says in another place, Psalm 110, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. And in the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. 
and he was heard because of his reverence. And although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him, being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Holy Gospel according to St. Mark chapter 10. And they were on the road uh, going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking ahead of them, and they were amazed, and those who followed were afraid. And taking the twelve again, Jesus began to tell them what was to happen to him, saying, See, we're going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles. And they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. And after three days he will rise. 
And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And he said to them, What do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, Grant us to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left, in your glory. And Jesus said to them, You don't know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or to be baptized with the baptism with which I'm baptized? And they said to him, We are able. And Jesus said to them, The cup that I drink you will drink, and with the baptism with which I am baptized you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or at my left is not mine to grant, but it's for those for whom it has been prepared. And when the ten heard it, they began to be indignant at James and John. And Jesus called them to him and said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. This is the gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, O Christ. I realize that, like I've talked about, and here I've talked about power a lot in the past, uh, you know, past year or so. And if you, if you can let me defend myself for just a few minutes here, I think that I have good reasons. I mean, one, it just has sort of happened naturally because, uh, you know, we're just coming out of an election cycle. And whenever I find myself doing this, whenever there is an election cycle, and my own heart gets to be where I'm like, okay, I hope the, I hope, I hope the man or the woman that I'm rooting for to win wins in the election, you know. And like, God, please help, you know, help the good guys win and help the bad guys lose. When I find myself doing that, which I do every time there's an election cycle, I, I, I always find the gospel saying to me, okay, you need to check yourself because you know, Aaron, that that's not how the kingdom's going to come. The kingdom's not going to come because the good politicians are in and the bad politicians are out. It's just not the way. The, king does, the kingdom doesn't work on that sort of power. Second reason why this has been talked about a lot is because um, and we're going like to do an installation of... Uh, elders and deacons here in a, a little bit after the sermon, is because, you know, we're just coming off of spending a year thinking about what is biblical church government and transitioning to what the Bible teaches the church government is supposed to be with elders and deacons. And so I think about, I'm thinking about power a lot there. The third thing is that I'm like, I, I've been thinking about idols also a lot the past year, and you can't hardly think about our, and my, my, I can't think about my own individual idols whatever those are, without tracing them back to the two primal idols from Genesis chapter 3, and that is uh, pleasure and uh, power. Pleasure and power. We, we, always, we always want power. We always want to be like God. That's, the, that's, the, that's that hum behind all the, that's the background noise behind all of our individual sins is this notion that I can be like God. And so um, I think about power a lot then too. And also I in my last excuse is that it's just in the text a lot. I mean, this is, this is the text for this particular Sunday of the church here when you're going through Mark is to read this one. And this text is all about power. In fact, that's one of Mark's main themes. Um, I mentioned this a few weeks ago. Mark 1 through 8, the first part of 8, Jesus is doing a lot of miracles. He's doing a lot of teaching. And then in Mark 8, he changes tact. And Mark tells us that in three times, Mark 8, in Mark 9, and in Mark 10, Jesus predicts his own death. Jesus says, I'm going to Jerusalem, and the religious authorities and the political authorities are going to gang up on me and kill me. 
and I'm going to rise from the dead. And Mark, in each one of those cases, each one of those cases, Jesus makes this announcement, and then one of his disciples says, never mind about that. What I want is power. So in Mark 8, which we looked at a few weeks ago, so I'm not going to re rehearse that too much, but in Mark 8, Jesus says, who do you say that I am? And Peter says, you're the Messiah. And Jesus says, excellent, you've got, you've got it, I'm the Messiah. And then Peter says, and then Jesus says, and actually what the Messiah is, is I'm going to go to Jerusalem and I'm going to suffer, and after three days I'll rise from the dead. And Peter comes to him and says, basically, no, let's not talk like that. And Jesus says, no, you're, you don't talk like that. You want power, but if you want to be on my side, I'm headed for the cross, and you're going to have to take up your cross and follow me too. In Mark chapter 9, it's even more. Uh, it's even more over. Jesus says, I'll read this to you. Jesus tells the disciples, he says, the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days he will rise. But they didn't understand the saying. They were afraid to ask him. And very next verse, they, they kept on traveling, and when they stopped, Jesus said to them, what were you guys discussing back when we were traveling? And they, they kept silent. They didn't want to tell him because on the way they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. So Jesus tells them, I'm going to, go, I'm going to Jerusalem, I'm going to die. And it, it spurs on in their lives a conversation about which one of us is the most powerful or which one of us is the greatest, which one of us is the leader. And then that's, that's the second one. The third one is the text from today in Mark chapter 10 where Jesus says in verse 33 through 34, I'm going to Jerusalem, I'm going to get killed. And he's pretty descriptive about it too. It's not just a bold statement. He basically says, they're going to spit on me, they're going to mock me, they're going to flog me, and then they're going to kill me. And after three days, I'll rise from the dead. And then James and John come to him and say, okay, that's cool, Jesus. Now, whenever you get to be in charge, can me and my brother, can we like be the vice messiahs? Can we get power too? And then the, the, then the other disciples in verse uh, 41, the, the other 10 disciples, when they hear about it, they begin to be indignant. They're ticked off because James and John were asking for power. And you always, if, you know, the thing that would tick you off about somebody asking for something is if you want it too. This notion of like, what, 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 why should you two get to be in charge? Right? Why, you know, what, what, what's wrong with the rest of us? And then they're going to go right back to the fight from Mark chapter 9, which one of us is greatest? Um, so anyway, that, that's, this is what Mark is doing. He's, he's saying the world thinks about power this way. The world thinks being in charge. We'll look at this more in just a second. But I think about power in terms of suffering. And I want you guys to think about that power that way too. And the disciples just can't get it. Because they think about power in, like the, in the Gentile way as it's described here. They think about power in the worldly way. And, and here's the problem with it. Well, there's lots of problems with power. I'm just going to point out one from this text. Is James and John want power, and that means that the other ten don't get it. I mean, if they end up, if they end up getting it. Right? The problem with power is that it's a zero-sum game. The problem with power is a math problem. Like, the power that we want is power that somebody else won't get. I want to decide what we're watching on TV tonight, and that means that Angela doesn't get to decide, right? The, the, the more power I get, the less she has. And that's the way worldly power always works. We see this in politics, right? Like, theoretically, democracy is supposed to be about everyone gets a voice. But what it actually is, is whichever side wins gets a mandate, and the other side gets nothing, right? Because it, power is a zero-sum game. I guess the disciples could say, Wait a minute, that's not fair. Let's all share it. 
Let's all 12 of us be in charge. But even then, it's still a zero-sum game. 12 people to have equal power means that that's one-twelfth of the power. You really don't ever get 100% of the power. But if you're going to play that game, if you want the world's power, whatever it is, it's in your family or at work or in politics, that means that you're going to have to deny that power to somebody else, and that's impossible. Nobody can ever get to 100% level power. I'll give you a few examples. In the world of politics, this is true. Um, Joseph Stalin, the dictator of the Soviet Union, almost, almost lost himself World War II. I mean, he didn't know World War II was going to happen. But right before World War II happened, he was paranoid that some of his generals and some of the people high up in the Soviet government were plotting against him. And so he had them liquidated. He had them offed. He had them executed, right? You know, what is, Stalin was a dictator. What did he want? 100% power. And he starts hearing these rumors. He starts getting this notion that some of his generals want a little bit of slice of that power. And he is determined to rule by 100% power, and that means he has to destroy them. It's a zero-sum game. And if you want 100% power, that means everybody else is going to suffer. Now, on a lesser level, you see this with our presidents, too, that it doesn't take long before a president is in office before you see them being interviewed by the press and they start to get irritated. Because one of the things about 100% power, whether you're the president of the United States or whether you're the dad of the house, is that I want to tell you what to do and you need to understand me and obey me. And when you find yourself explaining yourself over and over again, you start to get this sense that like, I don't actually have power here. I'm telling these people what I want and what's true and what's right and they aren't listening. And that creates a deep level of frustration. In fact, it creates paranoia. If you're going to play, this is one of the symptoms, if, you, if you're going to play the 100% power game that James and John want to play here, you're going to end up developing paranoia because there's always going to be somebody. And by the way, it's interesting to me too. James and John, what if Jesus said, okay, that's cool. Yeah, here, I'm going to put James. You, James, you be on the right side of me, and John, you be on the left side of me. What's going to happen about 30 minutes into that arrangement? James and John are going to be like, Trying to, what does that mean? Okay, which side is the most important? It's, it's never going to work. Unless one of them has 100% power. And even that's not going to work because Jesus is always going to have the 100% power. So you see that in politics. You see that in business too. I was reading this uh, a piece in the Harvard Business Review from, uh, from a few years ago. Uh, and it was called, it was entitled, When Paranoia Makes Sense. And the guy, was, the guy who was writing the piece was looking around at great business leaders. And he was noticing that great business leaders frequently have high levels of paranoia. And he didn't say as much, but what, but what he meant was that they're determined to control their companies by 100% power. And what that means is that they walk around all day wondering if one of their subordinates is trying to get their chair, trying to get their office. And the writer of the piece was trying to rationalize this because he was saying people who are like this end up being great business leaders, and so paranoia must be good to some extent. And he was going through explaining the ways that paranoia is good. It makes you careful. It makes you not trust your subordinates and your associates, and so you're always kind of checking them and ended up pushing them to be great. And it was kind of falling flat because the, the thing is, is that all these people, well, I mean, you've worked in a situation, some of you have worked in a situation where the, with a micromanager or a boss who's like, it's got to be 100% my way or no way at all. And you know that that's devastating to work for somebody like that, and it's devastating for that person 
to not be able to sleep at night because you're always wondering, is somebody going to be, is there some plan in the works to get rid of me? Anyway, I just thought it was interesting. He closed off, the, the guy closed off this article by saying this. He talks about all these people, like he quotes Steve Jobs, and, um, and he talks about, you know, Steve Jobs was classically like this, but he pushed everybody to get better. You know, and of course, Steve Jobs was just miserable. You know, I mean, he loved, you know, he loved computers and electronics, but as a human being, he was self-confessedly extremely unhappy. And so he closes off by saying this, even in our most irrational fears, we may find important and useful information. Well, any, like anybody who's taking like even a single counseling class knows that you never encourage somebody to foster their irrational fears because it helps them become a wiser. It's just a ridiculous thing to do. But this guy is trying to say, you know, the paranoia that comes from the demand for absolute power, it's kind of good. And it just feels funny because his last line is this, while we may be a little sadder for our paranoia, we will be a little wiser for it too. That's the last line of the article. Do, do you call being paranoid? Do you call being desperate for power a little sadder? This is not the way that people who live. Joseph Stalin was not a little bit sadder, but wiser. He was not. He was an evil man who was determined to crush people who were against him. And that's what James and John are asking for. They don't know it yet. They don't know that. They want power because they think it's going to be good. And, and I'm sure this is what all of us do when we want power. If I can get that power, I can be a better parent or the workplace will go better. But once you get that power, being a sinful human being like James and John and Steve Jobs and Joseph Stalin are, that power will be used in a zero-sum manner to sap any sort of energy and power from other people. That's the way that power works. Family situations too. All right. Well, I I need to bash myself for just a second. So church situations are no different than uh, than, than, uh, job situations too. There is a few years ago, I might have mentioned this when we were talking about church government. There was this movement in the LCMS amongst people who are interested in nerdy stuff like church government uh, towards a CEO model of church um, church government, where people were saying stuff doesn't get done fast enough in church because it usually works through boards and committees and stuff like that. But if you, if you find somebody, the pastor, and you invest that pastor with CEO-level powers, then decisions can get made quicker and more efficiently, and the church won't be stalled out on mission. And that makes a certain amount of sense when you think about, like, we need to get things done around here. Let's have a meeting. Well, then that meeting's going to be like, we, we really didn't decide anything. Let's meet again in four weeks. And then things are just going to get moved slow. So if you give one person the power, then things can go up. But, but I'll be honest with you, and you guys know this, and uh, I'm saying this as a confession and as a way to call myself to accountability to you guys. If I have power around here, I'm going to misuse it. And that's why we're going to this elder a deacon model of church government is because I, it would not be good if one person is in charge. That's part of it. I, I don't want to be in charge. Anyway, this whole zero sum, this whole zero sum thing works with family uh, relationships and friend relationships too. So you've been there. You're having a fight with your brother or with a friend of yours or with your spouse. And um, when I talk to you about this, almost universally, people will say, well, I know I'm wrong. I know that I don't do everything perfect. But here's what they do. You know, one, two, three, four, five. Here's the list of things that they do. And if we have that conversation with your brother or with your friend or with your spouse, it'll always go like this. The other person will say, yeah, but you know what? You, one, two, three, four, five. And they'll start bringing it. You know what, what, you know what they're doing? 
They're like trying to manipulate the math. The first person says, I'm probably, nobody ever says percentages, but the first person says, I think I'm probably 20% wrong in this relationship, but they're 80% wrong. And then the other person says, yeah, but what about this, this, and this? And what they're trying to do is say, no, it ain't 20%. You're more like 60%. And the other person's, and I'm like 40%. And then the other person says, no, this is so much of the time I spend in counseling is, well, you said this. No, but remember that time when you did this? And it's like they're trying to adjust the math. And you know why? Because both of them have this sense that I need to be 100%. And you can't actually say that. But you wanted to get, and the other person refuses to even allow it to be 5149. And so you're monkeying with the math, and nothing ever gets solved because that's the way power works. Power, if it's going to exist, the world's t- world type power, Gentile type power, if it's going to exist, has to be above the people that it has power over. Okay, what's the solution? Let me give you three things real quick from this text sacrificing, modeling, and identifying. Sacrificing, modeling, and identifying. First of all, sacrificing. Verse 42, Jesus says to his disciples who are playing this zero-sum power game, you know that those who are considered rulers over the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. Just check out the word over is in there twice, right? That's the way power in the world works is the one who has power is over. I am above and you are below. It's a zero-sum thing. And because I'm above and you are below, you will do what I tell you to do. I am in charge of you. That's the way power always works, whether in our families, at our job, in the church, in politics. It's the way, it's the way it always works in the world. And Jesus says it's not going to be that way amongst you. Verse 43, it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. Deacon is the word he uses there. And whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. If you want to be the, if you want to be the greatest, you have to be the slave of everyone else. Jesus says that the way the power works in the kingdom is you give it all away. You give it all away, and that makes you the most powerful. Now, it's t- totally counterintuitive, all right? But what I'm saying is this. Family situation. You're having a conflict with your wife or with a friend of yours or with your brother. The way for that victim—if you, if you want the relationship to win, you have to be the slave in that relationship. And that means you have no rights. I know I just said something incredibly anti-American and incredibly anti-human and postmodern. But you have to give up your power to the other person. You have to say, I am complete. And this is the way to do it. You say, I am completely wrong. I can't answer for you. I said, look at my brother and I say, I can't answer for you. But as far as what I've done to this relationship, I am 100% wrong. And I completely back down. Now, some of you are going to say, well, that means you're going to get run over. And there is a chance that that's going to happen. But let me just encourage you to say this. Let me encourage you to believe this. But that, the first step is this, and I'm going to get to that in a second. The first step is this. Losing the battle in the relationship means winning the impossible victory of the relationship being healed. Losing a battle in the relationship in this way, saying, I lose, you win. You're completely right. Now, you, you, everything inside of your brain is going to say it's not true. You aren't completely wrong. Everything inside your brain, and you're going to have to say, it doesn't matter. I'm completely wrong. Now you're going to say, okay, so then you're going to get run over, right? That person's going to abuse you. A couple things. First of all, trust the gospel. You would be surprised how powerful that is. How powerful sacrificing yourself like Jesus is towards healing. First thing, you just got to trust it. Second thing, what we're not saying here is by sacrificing yourself. By, Jesus does not mean by making yourself the slave of all. 
that you agree with the person that everything they do is okay with you. Because, second step, we're not just sacrificing, we're modeling. We're doing this not as an act of self-deprecation, not, not, not as an act of like self-humiliation, but we're doing this because we're modeling the behavior of Jesus. And that's the classic verse 45. Jesus says, for, because, he's like, I'm telling you, to make yourself the slave of all, because, here's the reason, even me, even the Son of Man came not to, serve, not to be served, but to serve. The Son of Man came to be a deacon and to give his life as a ransom for many. We do this because it's what Jesus did. We do this because it's what Jesus did. This is the clearest, expe- this is the clearest explanation of substitutionary atonement in the Gospel of Mark. The Son of Man came to gave up, give up his life to ransom everybody else. Jesus is saying that the way power works in his economy is you give, up, you give yourself up and it ransoms everybody else. That's what he's saying. Do you, want, do you want to ransom the relationship? Do you want to ransom your workplace? Give yourself up. Make yourself powerless. Say, I have no rights here. I am your slave. I am your servant. Now, Jesus does not mean, Jesus does not ransom himself for us and say, okay, well, everything you do is fine. I'll just let you do whatever you want. No, Jesus is very active in saying, you need corrected. Your behavior's not right. Your lust for power is damaging to our relationship and to your relationship with everybody else. However, it does not mean that he does not sacrifice himself for us. He gives himself up to save us. That's the second one. We do it because we sacrifice, but we do it because we're modeling. We do it because Jesus did it. And now, of course, this is impossible, right? I mean, even if I say this, go be like Jesus. Like, who can do that, right? You can't be like Jesus. You can't sacrifice yourself. There's no, there's no world that exists in which you can say, okay, before my wife or before my best friend, I will give up 100% of my power and all, all my quest for power, even though Jesus is telling us to do that. Here's the third thing, identifying. We sacrifice, we model, we identify. Go back to verse 38. Jesus says to James and John when they ask for power, he says, you don't know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? What does he mean by the cup and by baptism? He means a couple things. First of all, the cup in the Old Testament, I mean, we don't use this, we don't use this um, idiom here, but the cup in the Old Testament is slang for to experience something that somebody else is forcing you to experience. Frequently, the wrath of God in Isaiah, the cup, drinking the cup of God's wrath down to the dregs is kind of a common idiom for the suffering that the servant is going to have to do to drink the cup of God's wrath. And Jesus is saying, I'm going to have to drink that cup. And James and John, you can't drink that cup. I'm going to have to go through a baptism. Again, baptism is also in the Old Testament. Baptism language has to do with suffering. There's a lot more to it than just suffering. But even in the New Testament, our theology of baptism is really, really informed by suffering. Baptism, one of the... One of the best Old Testament antecedents for baptism is Noah's flood. Peter talks about this as baptism as, as uh, an expression of the flood of Noah. And what happened in the flood of Noah? The whole world is destroyed, right? One of the best expressions of baptism we have in, in the New Testament is 1 Corinthians 10, where Paul says baptism is like when the children of Israel crossed the Red Sea. Well, what happened then? All of the Egyptians are drowned. And that's why Luther says when he explains baptism that baptism is... It's a constant daily reminder your baptism is that the old man needs to be drowned every day. 
It's suffering. And Jesus says, I'm about to drink the cup and I'm about to be baptized. And he means I'm about to suffer. And you can't do this. And then they say, yes, we can. And Jesus says, okay, okay, you will. You will get the wine and you will get the water. Not the way that you think, though. You can't do it like I do it. You can't ransom the sins of the world with your suffering. But I will let you participate in sufferings with me. I will let you identify yourself with me. Not because through your suffering you can save your marriage. Because through my suffering on the cross, through my baptism in my cup, I can save your marriage. And if you will identify with me, if you will say, that's me too, I'm with him. I'm willing to suffer in this marriage because Jesus has done the main suffering in this marriage or in whatever relationship it is. I can rescue that relationship. That's, by the way, when you get baptized, there's a lot of things that's going on when you got baptized. There's a lot of things that, that, that are going on when you come up and you receive the wine of Jesus' blood. But one of the things you're doing is you're saying, I'm with him. That's me. That's the team that I'm on. That cup is my cup. I don't have to drink it because it's God's wrath. But I get to drink it because it's Jesus' blood, which paid the price to satisfy God's wrath, and now it belongs to me. You can give up power, not because you can give up power, because Jesus gave up his power. And now because we're on his team, he gives us the strength to give up his power as well. One more quick thing. Check yourself. Learn to check yourself. Your desire for power, which we all have, is it a healthy one? Is it gospel-oriented? Or is it a disciple one? I want the power so I can be greater than these other ten. Here's a great way, here's a great way to check yourself. They come, to him, they, they, uh, they come to him in verse uh, 37, and they say, give us what we want. And Jesus says in verse, uh, I mean, verse 36, Jesus says, what do you want me to do for you? And they say, we want power. What do you want me to do for you? Jesus says to the disciples, and they say, we want power. I want you to ask yourself this question right now. Let me give you a second to think about this. What is it that you want Jesus to do for you? I'm assuming that, that, that all of you guys are here because you want something out of a relationship with Jesus. Maybe it's just like the rhythm of like, I know that I go to church every Sunday. Probably for most of you, it's more than that. You want something out of this. Maybe it's just because like, I want to satisfy my family member who keeps pestering me to go. Or maybe it's just because I feel guilty if I don't go. But a lot of you probably want something. We all want psychological health. We all want our money problems fixed. We all want physical health. We all want relief from guilt. We all want to be better people. What is it? When you come to Jesus and he says to you, what do you want me to do for you? What is it that you say? Do you say power? Let me give you an alternative. This isn't in our reading. and We're not going to read this, uh, this, this church here. But the very next story, Jesus ends up asking the very same question. The very next story is the story of Bartimaeus, the blind beggar, who is crying out to Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And so Jesus says, bring that guy over to me. And he gets over there, and here's what Jesus says to him. Exact same question. In verse 51 of chapter 10, he says, what do you want me to do for you? Exact same question. And you know what Bartimaeus says? So Mark has put these two stories back to back because there's two ways to answer that question. The one way is the James and John way. We want power. Jesus, make us powerful. Jesus, make us successful. Jesus, like, fix my wife. Fix my kids. Fix my friends. Jesus, fix my business. The other, the, the other option is the Bartimaeus way. What do you want me to do for you? You know what Bartimaeus says? I want you to heal me. Can you give me my sight? When you, when you have identified with Jesus to the extent that you know that he's done all the suffering and that means that he gets all the power, 
It liberates you to say, Jesus, I don't want power from you, but Jesus, fix me. This is why I'm here. Jesus, heal me. I am broken, Jesus. I need your help. That's actually, it's the most helpless thing in the world. It's 0% to say, I have nothing. If you identify with Jesus and say, Jesus heals me, heal me, you will find out that it is actually 100% the most powerful thing in the world. It's the power of the gospel. It's the power of salvation. It's the power of healed bodies and healed minds and healed relationships. Ironically, by giving up the world's power, you find yourself tapped into the most powerful thing in the entire universe, the power of the death and resurrection of Jesus. Stand with me and let's pray. We'll have communion. Let's pray. Dear God, we are a people who crave power. We want power. We want to be in control. Even if we don't think that we want to be in control ourselves, we want to have the power of health or the power of wealth or the power of comfort or the power of pleasure or the power of safe relationships or whatever it is. And God, all these things are great and they're fine. But what we really need deep down inside, is we need infinite power. That's what we crave. We, we grasp it. We can't get it. And we confess to you that we can't. We confess to you that we're wrong to lust for it. Most of all, God, we want you to use your power to save us. We want you to use your infinite power, the, the power of your Son, to rescue us. Lord, in your mercy. God, there, there are so many uh, needs this morning uh, that we can pray for. Uh, and again, I guess we circle back and find ourselves praying again for power. God, will you fix what you want to fix? Will you give us trust in you in the areas where we need trust in you? Will you give us hope in the areas where we need more hope in you? God, you know that we don't have faith. You know that we have unbelief. Forgive us for that. Help our belief. Increase our faith in you and trust in you. Lord, in your mercy. God, be with everybody who's struggling. Be with everybody who is hopeless and uh, be with people who are struggling with doubts. People, uh, be with people who are struggling with physical pain. Be with people who are mourning this morning. We pray especially that you would bless and comfort the family of Paul Kelso who passed away this week, that you would give them hope and comfort in the resurrection of your son Jesus and in the promise that Paul is now with you spiritually, but mo most important that when you send your sons back someday, you are going to raise Paul's body and our bodies from the grave and make all things new. Lord, in your mercy. Father, we can only pray these things because of the blood of your son, Jesus, which was spilt to reconcile us to yourself, to ransom us back to yourself, and now exist in this world, applied by your Holy Spirit through the proclamation of your word, the proclamation which we, your church, are making in your name. The power of that blood spread over all of Glen Carbon and Edwardsville, expanding, always expanding over the whole of your creation. That power is the only way that we can come into your throne room. And so we pray this in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. Confess with me if you can. Confess with me the words of the Nicene Creed. I believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and of all things visible and invisible, and in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, begotten of His Father before all worlds, God of God, light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made, being of one substance with the Father, by whom all things were made, who for us men and for our salvation 
came down from heaven and was incarnate by the Holy Spirit of the Virgin Mary and was made man and was crucified also for us under Pontius Pilate. He suffered and was buried. And the third day He rose again according to the Scriptures and ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of the Father. And He will come again with glory to judge both the living and the dead whose kingdom will have no end. And I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord and Giver of life, who proceeds from the Father and the Son, who with the Father and the Son together is worshipped and glorified, who spoke by the prophets. And I believe in one holy Christian and apostolic church. I acknowledge one baptism for the remission of sins. And I look for the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. Amen. And now let's pray together in Jesus' name, the prayer that He taught us. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be Thy name. Thy kingdom come, Thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For Thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Our Lord Jesus Christ, on the night when He was betrayed, took bread, and when He had given thanks, He broke it and gave it to His disciples, saying, Take, eat. This is My body given for you. Do this in remembrance of Me. In the same way, He also took the cup after supper, and when He had given thanks, He gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you. This cup is the new covenant in My blood, shed for you for the forgiveness of all your sins. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of Me. The peace of the Lord be with you always. Amen. You may be seated.
Savior Jesus Christ, strengthen you and preserve you and keep you in the one true faith to life everlasting. Depart in Christ's peace. Amen. Lord, now let your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared before the face of all people, to be a light to lighten the Gentiles and to be the glory of your people Israel. Glory be to the Father and to the Son and to the Holy Spirit as it was in the beginning, is now, and will be forever. Amen. If I, we could have the elders and the deacons and deaconesses come forward. So we, you guys have, most of you went through this with us last year. We, so we prayed about this and studied this, and uh, what we wanted to do was to have a biblical church government. Um, which there's two, offices in, there's two offices in the New Testament, um, office of elder and uh, deacon. That's uh, that's what's in the New Testament. And we didn't have that here. And so to trust Jesus and to say, we're going to try and be biblical about the way that we do things here at the church. And um, that meant studying what is an elder. Um, there is never one elder in a church in the New Testament. There's always a multiplicity of elders. Elders are not bosses. The pastor is not the Lord of the church. First Peter 5 makes this clear. Uh, elders are not to lord it over the congregation, but they're to serve as an example. It's a quote from 1 Peter 5. There's also deacons and deaconesses in the New Testament as well, whose job is to work alongside the elders to take care of the physical needs of the church. The physical needs are always spiritual needs too, um, but to take care of those needs as well. And so this is what we did last November is we thought and prayed about these guys here and felt like God had called these people to serve us and to serve the community here. And so what we wanted to do is to do something more official than just like the, you know, have a, a church business meeting and say, okay, we're, we're cool with those people. We wanted them to stand here in between us and God and to say, I, I promise to serve you guys and to serve the community by serving Jesus. And so that's what we're going to do this morning. I'm going to ask them some questions and ask them to agree to these things before God and before you. And then I'm going to ask you guys to support them as well. So, oh, you know what? Can I do this first? Can I just like introduce you to them and kind of tell you uh, what's up with them too? So uh, I can go this way. Here's uh, Scott and Monica. Scott and Monica are the deacon and deaconess in charge of the inside of the facility. And I know that like this is some of this stuff you might be like, and I'm not like, I'm not trying to make Scott feel bad, but you might be thinking like, okay, so you know, who cares what color, you know, why is it important what color the walls are in here or if there's a leak and it gets fixed? Actually, the physical stuff is super important to God's kingdom. God is the Lord of this church building. He's the Lord of Glen Carbon. And so um, the things that Scott and Monica, I'm not going to speak this long for each person, by the way, too, so you can just relax. I'll get you out of here in a minute. This sort of like deacons and deaconesses are an office in the New Testament because it's super important to Jesus. There's never a sense that like, well, the elders are important and the deaconesses, they're just there to be the slaves and the servants, you know. That's it. They are um, 
serving God by serving us as well. So Scott and Monica are oversee the inside of the facility. This is uh, Larry O'Leary. If you haven't met him, he uh, is in charge of a lot of stuff. The uh, the live stream, the website, he sound engineers the music, he sound engineers the podcast, which you should listen to that commercial for that. Uh, Pastor Lang is uh, one of our elders. Stacy Stocky is, uh, she oversees and leads the youth group along with a lot of crossover stuff with Mercy Ministries. Dave Moldenhauer, elder. Joe Rather, elder. Chuck Rather is a deacon in charge of the music program, and Chuck also is in charge of the podcast. He plans and organizes that thing out, thing out and gets it running smoothly and also has a great radio voice, although that's not a qualification to be a deacon. Uh, Jared Fry, he is an elder. Sandy Hall is a deaconess, and she's in charge of the really, really powerful ministry, the Glen Carvin Elementary School. Some of you have worked with her on that and just done a lot of cool and great things uh, for the kids there. And uh, she has some uh, new stuff up her sleeve, too, so uh, be watching for that. Shanna Covarrubias uh, leads a community group. She's also in charge of Mercy Ministries as a whole. She's kind of a coordinator for all the different things that goes on. Eric Robinson is in charge of education whenever there's a question about whether it's Sunday school stuff or curriculum or the CCLS program, Eric heads that up. Jen Weber is um, our deaconess in charge of fellowship, which she's had kind of an easy year because we haven't been allowed to have a whole lot of events, but large-scale church events, Easter egg hunts, church suppers, VBS. She also uh, leads VBS. And here's Elaine Eberhardt, and she kind of runs the church's finances. She's the treasurer. She kind of makes sure that everything is on the up and up and that everything um, all the bills get paid and that uh, everything goes according to Hoyle. And we're missing some people because some people are out of town, like Bill and Pat Brink. I should look through here and see who's out of town. Bill and Pat Brink are gone this morning. They are traveling. Doug Rohr, also an elder. He's traveling as well. Doug has been a longtime elder here. Uh, Judy Reese is in charge of Altar Guild. She leads the Altar Guild team, and she also is not here this morning. Bill and Pat Brink oversee the outside, so they're kind of the flip side to uh, Scott and Monica. So they take care of the outside of the facility. Thanks, Dave. Okay, that's what they do. And um, super biblical, super important. And um, let me ask them some questions now. You all have been called to the ministry of shepherding. That's an elder thing. And serving, that's a deacon thing. Although all of you will be both doing shepherding and serving in your different ministries. You've been called to shepherd and serve St. James Glen Carbon in her community. This task carries heavy responsibilities. You've been entrusted with the teaching, defending, and sharing of the gospel, both in word and deed. Although your responsibilities may seem heavy at times, you need not fear. God has promised to be with all of you in the person of the Holy Spirit who will provide for your every need. Therefore, honestly answer the following questions before God and in the presence of the congregation. Are you willing to accept this responsibility to which God has called you? If so, say we are. Will you study God's word and pray so that you might be faithful followers of Jesus? I'll prompt you. I'm sorry. That wasn't fair to you. Will you faithfully teach or minister and or minister, I should say, God's word to those entrusted to your care, giving freely of your heart, your mind, your time, and spiritual gifting for their benefit and God's glory? If so, say we will with the help of God. Will you be a proper role model for those observing your behavior, teaching not just with words but with actions? If so, say we will with the help of God. Will you faithfully be committed to the worship life of St. James Glen Carbon so that you may come to better know and love our shepherd and his sheep? If so, say we will. I want to ask the congregation questions too. I rose with the nine o'clock service too. So just as many people out there as there are up here. 
Members and friends of St. James, we celebrate the presence of God as we recognize his call received by these members of our family to the shepherding and serving of St. James Lincarbon and her community. They come in a spirit of devotion to offer themselves to God for this service, and so it's our obligation to support them by our loyalty and prayers, seeking with them and for them consecration from on high that they may be empowered for their calling with reverence and faithfulness to the glory of God. Will you, as fellow members and friends of St. James Glen Carbon, and as partners in this gospel, promise, you, promise them your loyal cooperation and prayer support? If so, say we will. We will. Then I install you as elders and deacons, called to the high privilege of shepherding and serving the members of St. James Glen Carbon and her community, in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Be steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. Amen. Let me pray for you real quick. God, bless these people, your servants, uh, lovers of you, lovers of your people, who have freely offered to sacrifice chunks of their life to serve your people here, in fact, all of their life. And I pray that you would bless them in their ministry, help them not to be discouraged, but help them to always have hope in the power, the resurrection power of your gospel. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You guys can return to your seat and we'll sing the final hymn.